Broadcasting live from an undisclosed location in the western foothills, you're listening to Open Ears, Maine. We want to hear your pandemic stories. To call in, dial area code 515-602-9747. That's 515-602-9747. The phone lines are now open. Come along, R2. Don't be so silly. You can't possibly be getting whooping cough. Droids don't get diseases like whooping cough or measles or polio. But children do. If a young child gets whooping cough, it can lead to pneumonia, brain damage, even death. All you need is a little rewiring. But children need to be fully immunized. And alas, so many are not. All right, R2, I'll ask them. Parents of Earth, are your children fully immunized against childhood diseases? Call your doctor or local health department and find out. Immunize your children, please. And may the force be with you. Send for the Parent's Guide to Childhood Immunization. It's yours free. Write Immunization, Pueblo, Colorado, 81009. Welcome to episode 8 of Open Ears, Maine. It is Tuesday, May 5th, 2020, a windy spring day here in the western foothills, but the grass is growing and the nights are getting warmer. I'm your host, Crash Berry, editor-at-large for Mainer, the magazine and website at mainernews.com. By the way, if you enjoy true crime podcasts, you want to check out Devils and Dirtbags. That's my 13-part investigation of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Springfield, Massachusetts. You can listen to it at devilsanddirtbags.com or wherever you download. On today's show, we'll speak to State Rep Genevieve McDonald, a Democrat from Stonington Deer Island, with tips on how to file for unemployment as a self-employed Mainer or a sole proprietor. She's also the skipper of a lobster boat, so we'll learn about COVID-19's impact on the commercial fishing industry, and we're going to discuss misogyny in today's political circuses across the country. Later in the program, we'll be joined by Becky Pritchard, author and reporter for the Mount Desert Islander newspaper, to hear how the state's reopening plan will be putting the damper on this summer's tourism season down east. But first, the numbers. According to the state of Maine, there have been 1,205 confirmed cases of coronavirus. 57 Mainers have died from the virus, and 720 residents have recovered. Also, Sunday River Brewing Company in Bethel reportedly reopened today, this is the second day they've been open in violation of Maine's state of emergency orders. Their liquor license has been taken away. Their health license has been taken away. If you didn't hear my interview with brewery owner Rick Savage, check out episode seven of Open Ears Maine to learn how Savage got on Tucker Carlson's Fox News show last week to promote his illegal restaurant opening. 
I'm beginning to think that Savage is playing a grift here. One of his employees at Sunday River Brewing set up a GoFundMe for legal fees and fines, of course. The initial goal was to raise ten grand. So far, over $96,000 have been donated. I repeat, $96,000 have been donated to Rick Savage. Plus, at the Reopen the State protest in Augusta on Saturday, Savage mingled with a couple hundreds gathered in the state capitol, and he was welcomed as a celebrity and hero, and people were talking about him running for governor. So to take advantage of his expanding fan base, Sunday River Brewing is heavily promoting their merchandise and logo wear online. Coming up, State Representative Genevieve McDonald on unemployment benefits, lobsters, and political misogyny. We don't have to tell you America has an unemployment problem, that there just aren't enough full-time jobs to go around right now. What you might not know is that America's temporary help companies are ready to put hundreds of people to work who have job skills ranging from secretarial and clerical to industrial and medical. Employment for just about anyone who wants it. If more people would turn to temporary help companies, maybe we could turn unemployment into a temporary problem. Welcome back to Open Ears, Maine. Joining us now is Lobster Boat Captain and State Representative Genevieve McDonald of House District 134, which consists of Stonington, Deer Isle, Isle of Ho, and the offshore islands of Penobscot Bay. On May 1st, the feds and the state allowed the self-employed to apply for pandemic unemployment assistance, also known as P-U-A. Over 3,000 Mainers applied the first day. Representative McDonald, from your social media posts, it's obvious you've been helping lots of people navigate the system. How do you think the rollout of P-U-A went? Well, I'll be blunt. It has been rocky. I'm a self-employed commercial fisherman myself, and so my intention was to apply first thing in the morning, and then that would give me guidance to be able to walk other people through. The first thing that happened to me is that I was immediately locked out of my account. (laughs) Got off to a rough start. Um, Because I'm a legislator, I was able to get through to the main department of labor and I was able to get unlocked. And then I went in and I was still unlocked. So my personal experience started out a little rocky for sure, but I was eventually able to create a guidance guide and help other people apply There are absolutely some wonky aspects of the system. It took me all morning to figure it out. Many people have been able to apply. The system, I don't believe, completely crashed. So there is a silver lining there, but it has certainly been off to a rough start. I noticed you've posted many tips and hints on how to deal with the system that you describe as wonky. (laughs) What tips have proven to be the most important? Probably the biggest issue that people have been running into that is triggering them to get stuck within the system is that there is a question, have you worked for any employer since October 1st, 2018? Unless you have and that info appears, people need to select no. It seems pretty straightforward, but there is a check mark in the box for Maine that autofills. And in order for people to advance to the next page, they have to uncheck that box. 
People aren't realizing that they're getting stuck on that page. They can't go any further. And it's a relatively minor issue, but it is a glitch within the computer system that works very well for people that are traditionally employed, but does not work very well for people who are self-employed and then cannot advance to the next page. A little snafu there. If we put it into some context here, normally self-employed people and sole proprietors generally don't qualify for unemployment. So this is a twist to the system. How's that working out? Correct. I mean, a lot of this is due to this is a completely new concept. They had to rework the software. We're getting into an issue where the messages that the system automatically generates aren't applicable to people who are self-employed. People who are self-employed aren't being asked to submit their wages, for example, and they're receiving an error message of insufficient wages and it's directing people to call the main department of labor who don't need to because really their claim is still processing. That is probably the secondary issue. Once you do manage to get through the application, almost every single message that is automatically generated is not applicable to what is happening in the back office of the main department of labor. So for any one of these error messages, what do you recommend? People just ignore them? Unfortunately, yes. What it is doing is creating an undue amount of anxiety for people. It's directing people to contact the main department of labor who don't need to. What I would really like to see is for the main department of labor to do what I have done, which is to take screenshots that people have sent them or that they have from within their own system, diagnose them and post them with an explanation. For example, if you receive a message that you are eligible for zero benefits, that's not true. That's the first initial estimate that everybody receives. So it's creating this you know, panic, this sort of chaos, and most of these messages direct people to contact the main Department of Labor, and so in turn, it's flooding their phone lines. Main Department of Labor has gotten some of this information out on their Facebook page, so they are making process, but we need better communication between the department, not for individual cases, but just a general comprehensive guide to what these messages mean. Almost like an explainer for whatever the error codes and messages the filer would get. Would we be able to see those within the filing system or would it have to be outside of it, like you're saying, a Facebook page? No, unfortunately, there's no guide. There's no key that you can go and look up and say, I got this message. What does it mean? And there's six or seven that are pretty basic, that are standard. There's unique ones for people's unique situations, but most claims haven't gotten to that point yet. Almost every single one of these messages just indicates that people's claims are still processing. I saw you also made a suggestion on social media. Uh, and Here's the quote. The key is to answer the questions as if there was no pandemic. What did you mean by that? So that is for the weekly certification. For the weekly certifications, there is a list of questions where people need to confirm, are you available to work? Were you able to work? There are people that don't really know how to answer that because, you know, I'm available, but I have some underlying health problems and I don't want to put myself at risk of COVID. But the way to answer those questions is if there was no pandemic. If there was no pandemic, would you be available to work? Yes. If there was no pandemic, would you turn down work? No. And the work search requirement has been waived. And so there are some unnecessary questions built into that page that is left over from before COVID, because that is what our computer system is really for. I saw another reference to name changes. 
I think you said something about uh, women with maiden names, for instance, and that have filed. What, what's the deal with that? Yes. So that is what happened to me. And that is why I was initially locked out and unable to create an account years ago, 10 years ago. I filed for unemployment under my maiden name. And so even though McDonald is my legal name, I'm in office, I mean, I use it on my taxes, on everything, the system did not recognize my married name. So then what did you have to do? I had to contact the main department of labor to unlock my account and update my social security number in their system. So would that be through a hotline or a helpline? Unfortunately, no, you have to call the 1-800 number. What is the process if someone is self-employed and also has, uh, let's say, a, a part-time gig somewhere with a business? How does that impact their benefits? I don't know, to be honest. That's a question I haven't gotten an answer to yet. Because there are many self-employed people that have part-time gigs as well. And I um, yes. would hate to see that impact their benefits. A lot of complaints about log-ins and log-outs, that the system is overloaded and people are getting kicked off the system while they're filing. That must be very frustrating. Any idea why that's happening? It is very frustrating for people. And some of your information will be saved when you log back in, and some of it won't. There are fields that it saves, like your social security number and your name. And unfortunately, that's just due to the sheer volume of traffic. Maine has over 100,000 people that are self-employed. And so at any given time, there are thousands of people trying to access the system. I saw you made mention are they are, quote, resetting the log and lockouts and using the chat option on the MainCareerCenter.gov website. Yes, and I should have clarified that in one of your last questions. So if you are locked out of your account or you have a user ID or a password issue, the main career centers are authorized to help people gain access to their account. They cannot help you file a claim, but they can get you back into the account. So try contacting any location in the state. And someone did tip me off earlier today that they are using the live chat feature to also help people gain access. Okay, so the main career center's live chat might be the quickest way for people to get some information from the state. Also on the unemployment website, it says, if people have applied for benefits and been denied due to insufficient earnings, do not reapply. Your claim is in the system and will automatically transfer to PUA. Are you aware of that happening? Is the system's automations uh, doing what they're supposed to do? So that is what we are told, and that's the advice that I've been giving people. I have yet to see that happen yet, but it doesn't mean that it isn't going to. People that have applied previously and been denied should go into their account and check and see if the system has allowed them to file any weekly certifications. And any weekly certifications that are available, please fill them out, and that should initiate the process. Okay, so make sure that you fill out the weekly certifications. That's obviously essential. Uh, how long before people will start seeing the benefits from the PUA? I do not know, but I really hope it's this week. I know that with the earlier filings for unemployment, if everything went swimmingly, it was supposed to be a week's wait. So we'll see if that happens with the PUA. Have you been hearing from people who are struggling because they're not getting benefits or they're having troubles with the system? Absolutely. People that were denied because of monetary ineligibility a week ago, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, are really struggling now, and they really need this program to come through. There's definitely people that are on hard times, and they really need access to benefits now. 
They've known that they would qualify since the CARES Act was passed. That was quite some time ago. Maine was slow to roll out this program, as were many states, because this is a new concept to allow people who are self-employed or had various other issues where they didn't qualify for regular unemployment. We were told if people applied Friday or Saturday of last week, they should start receiving benefits this week. And anybody who applied Sunday or later should start receiving benefits next week. And benefits will be paid retroactive to March 15th. So you should receive a lump sum. And hopefully that will help people out tremendously. Yeah, the retroactive pay would come in handy. Now, would that come via direct deposit into somebody's bank account? Yes. And so after you finish filing your claim, you need to go in and enter your bank account information into, I think it's benefits maintenance. If you don't have direct deposit or if that's not an option for you, you will receive a debit card in the mail that has your benefits loaded onto it. So like a EBT card. Correct. Uh, have you been hearing from constituents in regards to actual interactions with Department of Labor employees? Yes. So people are having more success getting through on the phone lines now than they were previously. It's still a really long wait time. It's still not a guarantee. But it does seem that more people are able to connect with the Maine Department of Labor. Some of the information I've been able to share on social media is because somebody spoke with a claims person and then got back to me. So we were able to provide updated information for other people who may be facing the same issue. So we're talking about how COVID-19 has kind of overwhelmed the state's unemployment system. Uh, In addition to overwhelming it, do you think it's exposed flaws in our system? Absolutely. We don't have enough people working for the Maine Department of Labor. We don't have enough people answering phones. I don't know what's going on with our computer system, but I was receiving complaints before the COVID crisis from people who were unable to access their account or were running into technical glitches. So when this is over, because right now is not the time to try to, you know, break something down and build it back up. We're sort of just doing triage at this point. But when this crisis is over, we absolutely need to take a look at the main Department of Labor and what we can do to improve that system. You seem very uh, responsive as a lawmaker, especially compared to my uh, local state rep. Are people from outside your district contacting you for help? Absolutely. I'm on social media. My posts are public. Anyone within the state is welcome to utilize me as a resource. When it comes to emails and putting in constituent requests and really hounding down answers, I do prioritize my own district because I need to, but I'm happy to connect people with their state rep. I've been sending out the you know, website to search who your rep is and encouraging people to contact their state representative. I'm more than happy to direct people to help if I can. This is your first time as a state rep. You're in your first sessions here. Um, You're getting kind of a baptism by fire in constituent (laughs) services. How are you feeling about your decision to run for office now? If you knew then what you knew now, would you still run? Absolutely. Before I was a state representative, I did a lot of advocacy within the commercial fishing industry. And so at that point, I wasn't limited by district. If you were a commercial fisherman in the state of Maine, I was willing to advocate for you. And I have a a different kind of district where I'm the Down East representative on the Maine Lobster Advisory Council. And so I have relationships. And for that district, it runs from the Canadian border to the Penobscot River. And so I've been doing something, it wasn't constituent services, but some similar outreach and advocacy before I became a state representative. So 
in some ways my district is larger now and in some ways it's a lot smaller, but I'm still happy to help people wherever I can. Everybody has their strengths and mine is communication and outreach. Just don't ask me anything about taxes, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings you to the next question then. Um, we're dealing with unemployment right now. In the near future, it feels like we're going to be having some issues with uh, people making their mortgages, being able to pay their rent. Is there any yes. sign of any kind of mortgage relief legislation in the future? I am not aware of anything that's pending, but that doesn't mean that it's happening. I'm on the Marine Resources Committee, and so a lot of my personal work is concentrated around marine resource issues, lobstering issues, right whales, clamming, things of that nature. There may be discussions happening in appropriations and labor and housing that I'm just not part of. Okay, well, let's uh, switch to the lobster industry and fisheries for a second. What impact has COVID-19 had on the industry? Oh, it is really, it's a mess. So our markets have greatly declined due to this crisis. The main lobster industry depends on a global market, on a nationwide market. We depend on casinos and restaurants and cruise lines and all of these other avenues. And everything is closed or if not closed, running at a very limited capacity. And it is going to take us some time to recover from this. Even if everything was to reopen today, it would still take some time to get the pipeline up and running again. So, I, you know, I wouldn't say it's a market collapse, but it's certainly a decline. Fortunately, this is not a time of year when our landings are the highest. It's actually the time of year when our landings are the lowest, but we are gearing up for our summer season. And from this point forward, especially as we get into, you know, June, July, and August, we're going to start to see landing soar upwards. And I really hope that we have a market for those lobsters by then. And it's going to take more than just the state of Maine reopening or just New England. We really need global demand to increase before we hit our really peak summer and fall season. I like how you point out that right now really isn't a, a big time for landings. Spring is when most lobstermen put out their traps. Um, at least those who didn't have them in deep water over the winter. How is spring trap setting different this year on Deer Isle and Stonington? So there's a couple of things I want to hit on here. So one, although this is the time when we have reduced landings, it's also usually the time that we have the highest price. And so fishermen that are working through this season are seeing a great decline in their revenue. And as far as setting spring gear goes, there is a tremendous amount of uncertainty. What should we do? When should we do it? Are we going to be able to fish? In addition to the COVID crisis, we are also dealing with some pending litigation in federal court about protecting North Atlantic right whales. And so we are really squeezed and getting a double whammy, both from the pandemic and from the courts. It is a very difficult time in the main lobster industry right now. Oh, that's terrible news. If someone is still fishing and making some money with these uh, landings that they have now, can they still apply for the PUA? Yes. And so the main department of labor is assessing eligibility based on net income. So for example, if you went fishing for two days and you made $800, but then you bought $800 worth of rope, your net income was zero. And so people can still apply report their net earnings and save documentation of their expenses. And that applies to any business. There are m multiple small businesses that are running at extremely limited capacity, just trying to make it through. 
you can still apply for PUA and just keep documentation of all of your business expenses. I also like how you mentioned that right now, usually this is the highest price uh, for hard shell lobsters right around this time of year. Uh, for people that don't understand how lobstering works, uh, the lobsters start crawling into shallow water soon and they'll be shedding. And then usually there's a market glut and that's what you're talking about. There'll be lots of landings. Generally, the price drops dramatically for soft shell versus hard shell. My question is, what do you think is going to happen to the price? I think the price is going to bottom out. And because we had such a mild winter, we are looking at possibly an earlier shed, which is always difficult for the industry. When we have a shed before tourist season really hits an upswing, it does create a glut in the market where we have more product than consumers. And that product can be very fragile at first because lobsters have recently shed their shells. And unfortunately, it's looking like this year that issue is really going to be compounded by the closure of restaurants across the nation. During that initial shed, until they really harden up, even just relatively harden up, it's virtually impossible to ship them without some uh, shrinkage or loss. Yes, and unfortunately, that shrinkage is greatest in the beginning of the season. There are ways to mitigate it. People are getting a lot better about quality and handling, both on boats and to dealers. But it is certainly something that we have to account for and be careful about when lobsters are so newly shed. Have you heard any reports from people uh, that were fishing all winter? Were there bugs out there? There were a few. I mean, it, it's never really a great season when you're talking about January, February, March, but it was okay. You know, when I was a young man, I lived on Matinicus and was a stern man, and I went with a fellow who went year-round. But the reason why he went year-round was to stay out of his wife's hair. It was like we <laughs> lost money almost. Absolutely. So some people just want to keep fishing. I mean, they just want to be out there. They love it. It's in their blood. They don't know what else to do with themselves. They'd go stir crazy if they were just sitting around the house. Some people really enjoy the peace of it. I know somebody that goes crabbing at the mouth of the Penobscot River in the winter just because he likes having something to do and loves being on the water. I can understand that. Let's switch gears here uh, to how the government of Maine has responded to the coronavirus outbreak. How do you think the governor has performed during this pandemic? I think that the governor has been excellent. I think she's been smart and cautious and careful and done a fantastic job of keeping Maine safe. If you look at the number of cases in neighboring states with similar population size, specifically Massachusetts, they have a similar population and 50 times the number of COVID cases. I know that this is hard for people. I know that this is difficult for our economy. But I believe if we are smart and we are cautious and we follow the safety protocols we need to follow so that we can keep the virus under control in the state of Maine, that we will reopen. Now, I've seen the words tyrant and dictator thrown around describing uh, Governor Mills, yet the Constitution and the State of Maine Emergency Operations Plan, which was updated by Governor LePage uh, back in 2017, it gives the governor broad power during states of emergencies. If that's the case, if she has that broad power, why do you think people are attacking her? I think because she's an easy target, right? We always blame the government. We have problems, blame the government. Something's wrong, blame the government. But what we really need to be doing here and looking at is blaming the virus. It's not the government's fault. 
And if you look at Maine on a map, I think it was the New York Times that recently released the data of which states were opening and which states weren't. Maine is one of the few states that is reopening and has a Democratic governor. There seems to be some misogyny in the criticism of her. I've seen her enemies being very, very cruel with the insults and and swearing at her um, like like she's responsible for the outbreak, like she's responsible for COVID-19. If the governor was a man, do you think the response would be the same? I think there certainly is some misogyny occurring, and it's certainly unappreciated by female leaders like myself. But I do think that people are also very quick to criticize leadership. I mean, Obama was a man, and they didn't hold anything back about him. So when people want to be crude and they want to be rude, then they will be. And I don't think it matters what gender that leader is. I have no problem with people disagreeing, but I really miss the days when we had enough respect to disagree without being disagreeable. And by disagreeable, I mean completely and utterly obnoxious. Well, just back to President Obama, though, he was a black man, not a white man. So the, the, the misogyny and racism that runs strong across this country, I think, was kind of illustrated by the response to Obama. But now with the attacks on Janet Mills and, and we're seeing in other female run states like Michigan, for instance, Michigan, yeah, uh, really terrible um, screaming, just sounds like screaming. They're just always screaming. But in states with male governors that have a female health director, the nut jobs are attacking that a health director. What do you make of that anger? Misogyny is alive and well in the United States, as is racism. And I had no doubt about that. And I think we're seeing the worst in people come out. We're seeing both the best in some people and the worst in others. Have people been criticizing the governor's performance to you? Here and there. I mean, I have a lot of friends in the commercial fishing industry. Obviously, the commercial fishing industry runs conservative. A lot of people give me the space to be a Democrat and don't come to me with their complaints. They know that we don't agree and that we're just going to butt heads. I try to concentrate on other avenues of government, like actually helping people and not just complaining about it. How do you think Paula Page would have handled the pandemic? Oh, I have no idea. I don't even want to see her eyes. I wasn't in <laughs> office when Paula Page was in office, and I'm glad that I serve under Governor Janet Mills. So what do you think of uh, Sunday River Brewing owner Rick Savage and his decision to reopen his brew pub early and the other protests going on in Maine? So I don't agree with the messaging and I don't agree with the action, but I absolutely support people's right to assemble and express their views. It's constitutionally protected and I respect that. I would have more tolerance of these events if people were practicing social distancing, if they were taking any safety precautions. One of my seatmates in the legislature, because we have, you know, mixed up the chamber, not by party, has been attending these rallies and then going on social media and bragging about how he didn't even wash his hands. And now they want us to reconvene, but they want me to sit next to a guy that is attending rallies with hundreds of people and not practicing any safety precautions at all. I have a family. I live on an island. I have a community protect not taking any type of action whatsoever to protect yourself is foolish and puts us all at risk. I would have had a different perspective if when they did these openings or the protests, if they made an effort to be a little more clinical about this, but they're just like giving everybody the finger and saying, come on in, you know, and that is just even worse. 
What do you think of the media's coverage of the protests? I think that the media is building their narrative for them. They're giving people their 15 minutes of fame and the attention that they're craving. And they're not being unbiased. They're putting all of the attention on the protests and not enough attention on the very good work that is being done to keep Mainers and citizens across the U.S. safe. I mean, this isn't just a problem in Maine, right? The national media is really concentrating on the protests and not concentrating enough on the very good things that are happening. So what's going to happen with the legislature when they get back in session? Are they going to be really far behind on the state's work? When we reconvene is up to the presiding officers, and I don't know when that will be, but it needs to happen sometime this year. We have to go in for a special session and finish the work that we left undone. Otherwise, it will die before the next legislature. Some of it will be brought back by, you know, reps that are reelected, but other pieces, other really valuable issues may just fall by the wayside. So hopefully we can nip this virus and we can get over this hump and we can go back and finish our work. And then the 130th legislature is going to have a tremendous amount of work to build us out of this crisis. There's going to be some very tough issues that we have to face in rebuilding our state. So I, um, I'll be there, hopefully, and I hope that other people are ready to put in some really hard work because that's what it's going to take. One final question. What's your advice for Mainers experiencing hardship because of COVID-19? To hang in there, really. Hang in there. Don't be afraid to reach out to people. Reach out to your representative. We are aware of a lot of resources, both within our communities and within the government. We are more than happy to try to get you help if you need it for really anything. And we're all in this together. I know it sounds trite, but that's really all we have, right, is each other. So while we're practicing physical distancing, please don't practice social distancing. Reach out. Don't be isolated. And when you go out, be smart, be cautious, be safe so that we can get this show back up and running. Have you heard the buzz about West Nile virus? Protect yourself and your family from the mosquito bites that spread the virus. Use mosquito repellents when you go outside. When possible, wear long-sleeved shirts and pants. Remove standing water where mosquitoes breathe. Most people who get West Nile virus don't feel sick, but it may cause serious illness. Bite the bite. Tell mosquitoes to buzz off. Joining us now from Bar Harbor is journalist and author Becky Pritchard. She's a reporter for the Mount Desert Islander newspaper, and she's keeping watch for us on the shore down east. First of all, Acadian National Park is now closed, according to the National Park Service. About three and a half million people visit Acadia annually. That translates into about $338 million benefit to the locals. 4,100 jobs connected to the park tourism. Becky, what has been the local reaction to the park's closure? The park being closed is just one of the many changes that people um, in Bar Harbor are grappling with this season. Um, you know, the park announced its closure to to discourage people from coming from out of state when they weren't supposed to. And so just the, the general closing down of things um, you know, 
I think people are disappointed that the park is closed, but it's just one of the many things. Um, there's that in the cruise ships and um, in non-essential businesses being closed. So it it all sort of goes together, and, and it's a really tough time um, for business owners in Bar Harbor right now. Yes, let's talk about the, the other major news for Mount Desert Island and Bar Harbor is that the future of cruises in 2020 is up in the air. According to yeah. the state's reopening plan, there's not going to be any commercial passenger ships with more than 50 people this summer, and they're going to review the assessment in September. That, coupled with Acadia being closed, is that the death knell for summer on MDI? Well, it doesn't look really good. Um, it's going to be a season like no other, that's for sure. Um, there are a lot of businesses on Main Street and in the, you know, in the downtown area by the water that really depend on cruise ships. Um, not only them, but the, the guided tours, the bus tour companies, um, restaurants, museums, ice cream shops. There, um, you know, they they get a lot of the money on cruise ship days when people are walking through town, um, even walking tours. So, so none of that will be happening. Um, you know, in a normal summer, it almost looks like Disneyland in downtown Bar Harbor, just the crowds that we have and, and um, catering to the um, cruise ship passengers. Well, the so, Chamber, yeah, Chamber of Commerce... Chamber of Commerce says $20 million spent locally by cruise ship passengers and that the town collects almost three-quarters of a million in yeah. passenger fees. So have you heard mm -hmm. any gossip on how the pandemic will impact the town budgets? Well, the town is stressing out. I have heard, um, you know, mentioned by town councilors that, that they will be missing cruise ship fees this summer, which, which is huge for them. Um, and there's also... They're not sure about the um, parking fees even because um, you might have heard we, we implemented a new paid parking policy last year. We got parking meters for the first time. And so even something like that um, being delayed, the, yeah, the town's definitely going to take a financial hit and and it could raise taxes. That, that's sort of been brought up. Um, and we also have like an 80-year-old elementary school that we've been planning on either rebuilding or fixing. And so, you know, it, it sort of, it it does put a damper on a lot of the plans the town has had. Um, we'll just see how how it goes. Well, uh, the Bills Administration said they'll revisit it in September. I know there's a heavy autumn cruising season in Bar Harbor because the uh, the foliage is fabulous on the shore. Uh, how would that work? Uh, what kind of logistical and staffing challenges would happen? Because if the cruises aren't there for the summer, will those shops be open? Will there be staff? Will, be, will there be restaurants? Well, that's a good question. Um, as for staffing, you know, we do have a lot of local people out of work now that would be really happy to get back um, and when businesses open up in the fall. Um, on the other hand, you know, we historically have had more jobs than people in Bar Harbor. Um, we've had a lot of, of um, people coming in from other countries, you know, H2B visa holders that, that work, you know, two and three summer jobs sometimes just to, to keep Bar Harbor running. So um, for the most part, they won't be here this summer. So, um, yeah, I don't know. 
um, if every business will, will be able to open at that point. But um, right now we do have a lot of restaurants open just doing um, curbside and takeout and delivery. So, um, so they will likely still be around. When you're out and about, are you seeing people wearing the face coverings? Yes. Um, for the most part, yeah, everyone wears them um, inside, like shopping, um, out on the street. You know, when people are walking by themselves, it's probably 50-50. Uh, across Maine, well, actually, um, we're starting to see businesses like Sunday River Brewing uh, break the state of emergency rules and open for customers, for seated customers. Is there any talk of local businesses trying to do the same? I haven't heard any talk. Um, no one has announced going against um, regulation at this point, but there is you know, there is a lot of debate about when the right time to open up is and, and whether the state is doing the right thing. Um, and, and you do hear both sides of that debate in Bar Harbor. And um, some of the most outspoken people that I've heard against a slow opening are um, people that in the hospitality that run B&Bs or, um, or trying to rent out Airbnbs because they, um, they really would like to see people start coming earlier than later but um as for restaurants I, ha I haven't heard a lot of um a lot of talk about opening when they shouldn't be yeah that 14 day quarantine is going to be a, a real vacation stopper for a lot of people have how have yeah. the shelves been at uh the hannaford and other island stores is there food and water available for you islanders um there's you know Toilet paper is, is still in short supply. Um, canned products and and pasta is, you know, not as as full as it usually is. Um, it's weird seeing shelves not entirely full, but um, but for the most part, yeah, our stores are stocked. Is there any word on the status of town meeting for the island this year? Well, um of the towns on the island, some have already canceled their annual town meeting or will postpone it um, until they can all meet in person. Um, there's one town, Mount Desert, that actually has in its bylaws that you can't hold town meeting with less than 50 people, and um, is it safe to have that many people in one room? So there, there one town, for example, that, that canceled their meeting, I think it was scheduled for, for May, um, so they'll have it when it's safe. Um, Bar Harbor hasn't canceled their meeting yet. Theirs is later on in June, so so we'll see um, if they're able to have theirs or not. Another reason why I like to check in with you is because you are the expert on Jeremiah Hacker. He's the original <laughs> main muckraker. You're the author of Jeremiah Hacker, journalist, anarchist, abolitionist. First, uh, a brief personality profile of Mr. Hacker, and how do you think he would respond to the pandemic? Well, um, he was a 19th century reformer. He um, had his own ideas. He was considered very radical for his time. And he was an anarchist, which I think is puts him in a really interesting... Um, he didn't think like anybody else. Um, for example, he, he didn't agree with um, governments or laws and... <laughs> <laughs> um, he he wanted to close prisons, for example. He he didn't like laws or, or punishing for not following laws. So, 
Um, you know, so I was thinking of how Hacker would respond to um, this current pandemic we're in, and the, you know, and the shelter-in-place laws, and the the closing of non-essential businesses. And I think he would um, he would want people to stay safe, and he would try to convince people to stay home. Um, but I don't think he'd really be in favor of the laws. So that that's kind of the weird. Um, position he tended to take in, in situations like this. Like back in the 19th century, he was against drinking, but he was also against prohibition um, because he thought <laughs> if you outlawed alcohol, people would drink more um, just to assert their independence when, you know, it's much better to just convince people they don't need it. Um, so I think, you know, for example, if he saw a business that wanted to open um, in spite of laws and regulations, he he would probably write about it, not being a good idea. He might actually go to that person and say, don't do this, that's a bad idea. But um, I, I don't think he'd be in favor of law enforcement either. So he was kind well, of and, um, an odd guy that way. Well, and he didn't drink either, so there's not a chance he would go into Sunday River Brewing and get one of their lousy beers. So I can't imagine... <laughs> We want to hear your pandemic stories. Email me at crash at crashberry.com. Are you reopening a stage one business? Let me know. Are you an employee of a stage one business? How do you feel about going back to work? Or are you an essential worker with a COVID-19 tail? We want to hear it. We're also taking tips on helpers, heroes, and bad actors trying to wreak havoc during the trials and tribulations of 2020, the email is crash at crashberry.com. Mm -hmm.